WNYC is teaming up with NPR to bring you a new daily podcast, Consider This. We'll bring you the biggest news stories and what's happening in our community to help you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Reynolds Price's story, His Final Mother. Like all sane children with baffling, even murderous parents, he understood that something he himself had done had brought this fate down on him. The story was chosen by James Salter, whose novels include The Hunters, A Sport and a Pastime, and Light Years. Salter has also written screenplays, memoirs, and many short stories. Hi, Jim. Hello. So Reynolds Price died early last year at 77. He published this story in The New Yorker in 1990. Did you first read it back then when it first came out? No, I didn't. I'd read other things of Reynolds. I was actually looking for a story, Mm -hmm. and I saw this one by Reynolds and read it, and I was drawn to it. Why did you sort of go into this thinking that he was the writer you wanted to read? Well, I did it out of some sense of loyalty, actually, mm-hmm. having known him and the fact that it was a, uh, he wrote numerous books, more than 20, and yet one single story in The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And uh, that fact appealed to me somehow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, when I read the story... I saw that it is very, very Reynolds Price, and what else would it be? And uh, that's really all that decided me. How did you get to know him? I think I met him at the uh, American Academy, the Arts and Letters Academy, to have an annual lunch. Mm-hmm. He used to come to New York. for You know, he's in a wheelchair yeah. for many years. But he was extremely congenial and sociable man. And he used to come up and stay at the Algonquin for a week and try and see all his friends. And uh, and then I saw him a good bit thereafter. You mentioned he wrote more than 20 books. He had books of fiction. He had novels. He had books of stories. He had poetry collections. Yes. He wrote memoirs. He even wrote plays. What, for you, is the kind of central defining characteristic of his writing, if there is one? Well, he's a Southern writer. Yeah. He belongs in there with Peter Taylor. Eudora Welty, who, of course, was his mentor and whom he revered. He uh, He's rural. He's very kind-hearted. People do bad things in his books, but there's no bad people. He was a religious man, mm-hmm. though not a church-going man, but intensely religious. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, taught Milton for much of his life, and he was very Southern in his own mannerisms and great storyteller, very entertaining, and he had a perfectly wonderful voice. He had a voice that made you think you knew him from listening to him. Now, this story, His Final Mother, is about a a 12-year-old boy and his response or the aftermath to a tragedy in his family. Is there anything else you'd want to tell people about the story before they hear it? Yes, I'd say keep an open mind because it is uh, a little bit allegorical, a little bit supernatural, and takes some liberties that you may not quite be prepared for in just hearing it. I mean, it's perfectly clear. 
it's just unusual. Great. Well, we'll talk more after the story. Now here's James Salter reading Reynolds Price's story, His Final Mother. Crawford Langley was 12 years old and still a child, but the first traits of manhood were on him. Tall for his age, no baby fat, no pointless smiles, a broad forehead and steady gray eyes that gave his head a claim on the dignified notice of adults. So it was early in that crucial year when he took what he saw as his first grown step. He managed to stamp out his old nickname. There was nothing more obnoxious than Ford, but he calmly told his friends not to use it. A few children laughed and tried to taunt him. Forty or even Model T. He smiled, but then refused to know them. And since he was anyhow the main child to know in his town and school, the funnier, surely, the most open-handed, they all came round in a matter of days, even his teachers and the baseball coach, even his mother, who privately called him Strut and Dub, all but his father. Crawford's father stuck with Ford, since that had been his own father's name. Crawford liked and trusted his father enough to humor him, and causes for that came thick and fast once his mother was gone. She left in an instant, no warning of pain so far as they knew. She was in the backyard, hanging an ancient quilt on a clothesline, and then she knelt. Crawford and his father had left for the day, but the cook had watched it clearly from the porch. She said, Miss Adele went to her knees like somebody needing to pray hard. Then it looked like she needed to rest her head. She went right on down slow to her side and smoothed the grass and stroked her hair. She was cool as a window by the time I touched her. The cook phoned school and Crawford was home on his bike in ten minutes. His father was an hour away taking an Irish setter pup to his lonely aunt. By then, the ambulance men were there. Her body was covered in the dim front hall. Young as he was, Crawford walked straight to her, lifted the sheet, and leaned in a slow curve to kiss the forehead. Cold as glass, he thought it before the cook could warn him. And though he loved his mother deeply, they'd all understood her racing heart would take her soon. He expected tears, and when none came, he told himself his natural feelings were in shock now. But before he took his hand off her arm, a tall new thing stood up in his mind. It was not a thought or even a feeling. It was more like watching his hands grow strong in a slow instant. He hoped it was one more sign of manhood. It calmed him at least and dried his eyes. He told the ambulance men where to go, Bond's funeral home. Then he tested the newborn's strength again. It poured right through him like iron in his blood. So he thanked the cook 
and asked her to wait till his father was back. She nodded and went to fix normal supper. Then Crawford thought he had to go pray. The word surprised him. Pray? For what? But when the cook had shut the kitchen door, he obeyed himself and climbed to his room. There he stood in the midst of the rug and waited to see if any word came, any message from him for God or man. But again, his mind was still and firm. He thought he'd taken another grown step. No need to lean on others or the sky. He could handle this trial with his own strong body and his new brave mind. Bravery was still his main ambition. He went to his shelf and found the old copy of Robinson Crusoe, his pick among books in recent months. Then he stretched on his bed and turned to page one. Crusoe was sunk in waste and shame and hell-bound for shipwreck before Crawford thought of himself again or the world below his silent room. What brought him back was his father's car door slamming in the drive. Crawford said one sentence aloud to the ceiling. This'll kill Dad, too, and I'll be gone. He knew it was hardly courageous thinking, but he didn't wait to understand the solemn further questions he raised. Gone where and why? He sped downstairs to tell the sizable news before his father could step indoors and call Adele and find her vanished. One of the main things Crawford knew was strong in his mind as he faced the father he'd long since tried to shield from harm. This boy is a whole lot shakier than me. Later that night, when their friends were gone, Crawford's father said they better take a walk before bedtime if they meant to sleep. They hadn't gone walking at night for years, since the time they had to admit in silence that they had nothing better to talk about than baseball or school. And tonight, anyhow, Crawford wanted to keep on reading Crusoe. But his father stood, so the boy said, Yes, sir. And they went right out through a kitchen that now was broad and empty as the plains of Gobi. After a speechless fifteen minutes... They left strong moonlight and entered the woods. His father was leading, and though they were taking their same old path, the whole idea of a walk was strange. So Crawford asked himself, what will we be when all this settles? He was still not asking, where are we going here tonight? In any case, no answer showed. He guessed he was safe, though, and tried to keep step, but his father stumbled a time or two, and then Crawford brushed his enormous back, which seemed too hot for the time and place. The woods stopped sooner than either one expected, and their feet were on the verge of the river before their eyes had opened enough to see the sudden end of the path. Crawford laughed a little at the near escape. 
but his father said it might have been better. Sir? Drowning tonight, not waiting around. I mean me, Ford, not you, not yet. Crawford knew his father was an excellent swimmer, so he thought the words were no cause for worry, just some kind of smoke from the hot pain in him. The boy moved on into reaching distance, but his father stayed still. No touch, no look. Then fear, like a tickling feather in sleep, flicked Crawford's mind. This man could do his will on a boy. Has he lost his mind? Does he blame me? So the boy chose his latest version of a grown man's voice and told his father, Sir, she's fine now. You just need to wait. For what? His father's voice was changing, darker and deep. Crawford said, You mostly tell me time's the big doctor. I've told you some lies. The fear struck now in Crawford's throat and begged him to run, but the boy knew he had to keep talking. What I really meant, she's waiting for you. In heaven, all well. The man's throat rasped at itself to spit, and his new voice said, You don't believe that. Crawford was suddenly shivering cold, though the night was warm. He told himself the man was wrong. With his mother's encouragement for years, the boy had thought of her long-dead pitiful father as safe in heaven, literally hunting in a far better shot than ever on earth. And since Crawford's own father prayed every night and often commended the habit to him, the boy now felt a huge trapdoor fall open in the ground nearby. If he took three steps in any direction, he'd surely drop through an endless hole. In an almost final hope of rescue, the boy said, Sir, I don't feel right about any of this. The man said, Then you must be growing. Sir? Nothing's right and won't ever be again. Get that through your head. It was already there. Crawford felt it as a hot ball stuck far back in the quick of his mind. So he said, I need you to calm down now. The man's big hand shot out and seized Crawford's neck. The fingers were colder even than the boy, though he thought he recognized the scrape of his father's thick palm. Crawford said, I'm still not strong as you. The man's grip eased. Then suddenly, he seemed to be gone. That's strange and quick. Crawford waited for a clue and finally spoke as strong as he could. Am I out here alone? From what seemed a far distance, the man said, You always were. The boy had roamed these woods his whole life and was all but sure he knew the way home, even in dark, this heavy and close. But he thought that if he moved, anyway, 
He might crash into his father's body or whatever changed man waited out here. So he tried again to say a prayer. Our Father, Lord, please. Crawford knew the words. They gleamed in his head as hard as signs. But some new way the world around him, the actual air, refused to let words out of his lips. He'd read of man abandoned by God, young Crusoe himself for his worldly wrongs. Still, what had he done, Crawford Langley, to pay like this? Had he some way caused his mother pain in broad daylight alone in the yard? At the thought, an arm of the night rushed the boy's cold face and choked his words. What felt like half his lifetime passed, though a real forty minutes, and then Crawford broke through the maze of dark woods. There, set in a space that looked familiar, was a house he guessed was his own old house, dark in every window and door. In all his years, he'd never seen it completely dark. Hadn't he and his father left it well lit? The boy was past the child's automatic fears of falls and darkness, but it came to him now that, in this house, the man who left him alone by the river was hid and ready. Crawford also knew there was nowhere else. He had school friends, and their parents liked him, but he couldn't turn back and run to them with such a wild story. Not this late. All he could think was to set his face and volunteer for the rest of what was stored up for him, life or death. He recognized the dent in the doorknob as he entered the kitchen, but from there on through, the dark was so thick he might have been walking on the far side of Venus. After four steps, Crawford saw in his mind as clear as fact that his father was hid right now in his path. He saw a butcher knife in the hand that had never once punished him so much as a slap. He saw the gray eyes, wide as a wolf's, fixed on a boy and perfectly aimed. Still, the boy put out both arms before him to grope his way toward the foot of the stairs. If he got that far, and his heart still worked, he knew he must try to find his own room and wait on his bed for a key to the meaning of this fresh news. Like all sane children with baffling, even murderous parents, he understood that something he himself had done, some unintended but last straw fault, had brought his fate down on him, and rightly. Each individual stair creaked out, but once Crawford stood intact at the top, he paused to test the air for warnings. Never in all his life in this house had it been so absolutely silent. He held in place till he heard his mind want one of two sounds— either the final slash of his father's vengeful knife 
or Crawford's own voice promising, Dad, I'm sorry for my whole life. I swear I'll be anything you say. But still the boy was in one piece. So he crept on past his father's door, no crack of light, found his own empty bed and stretched on his back. This time he never tried to pray. What he tried was a thorough backward search of his recent life. His mind was clear and a thousand details marched past his eyes. But no fault showed, nothing worth more than a goddammit Ford from his tired, patient father. So the boy kept coming round to the fact that as lately as two or three Sundays ago, he and his father had walked an hour out into the fields. There'd been a hard rain the night before, and that was always a lucky time for the hobby they shared. Arrowheads, shot or lost by the Tuscarora, ages past. No Tuscarora left in the state for 200 years. And when Crawford dug out a clear quartz knife, white as glass, a priestly knife they'd only dreamed of, he trotted to his father, held out his shut hands as in the child's game, and said, Pick one. At once his father tapped the left hand. Crawford grinned, cried out, It's Father's Day, and opened his palm on a stupendous find. Father's Day was months ahead, but his father took it with a look that deeply underlined what he mostly showed and had said more than once. He prized this boy. Surely this moment, the sacred point, was on his father's desk downstairs with the only other treasures he kept, a bullet dug from an ancestor's leg, and locked in a tiny glass box, one curl of his father's sister's hair. She died at two weeks. For a moment, Crawford wanted to find the crystal knife. What else, now under this strange new roof, might bring him luck or help defend him? But then he thought in some terrible way it might be used in the night against his heart. He remembered how Aztec priests had cut the beating hearts from men with just such points to feed their gods. At the chance, almost the certainty of that, Crawford spread his arms wide and shut his eyes. Still facing up now, he only waited. Balked as any mind can be, but likewise ready, he told himself, though soon he slid into scrappy dreams, then exhausted sleep. Crawford knew it was day well before he woke. His last dream told him he'd lasted the night, and that now he was fully a man, but alone. His eyes came open. No, still night. Then as he lay in the ongoing quiet, he knew that, yes, a light was growing, but not at the window. In another minute, he saw a glow was actually blooming, a great slow flower of morning light till his ceiling was patterned 
with numerous leaves in shades of cream and gold like nothing he'd ever seen or heard of. He wondered if he'd already died and this was his next home, high or low. But the same old lighting fixture hung there, and on a short string, the one plain model he'd ever finished. Whatever, then, the mild colors and gradual speed of the bloom were saying he was past the threat in the heart of the night. He rose on his elbows and looked to the door. He'd left it half open, and now he saw where the light came from. It streamed from the hall in a narrow shaft, then spread in these strange shapes through his room. In a long stretch from the bed, he could reach and carefully test the beam with his hand. It was not only fine to see, but the same temperature as his skin, so he had to be safe. He'd get up and make his way to what caused it. The time it took to walk up the hall through the streaming glow seemed longer even than the moment when he touched his mother this afternoon and knew he was somehow as changed as she. For the first full time, in his mind, Crawford saw her welcome face and heard her voice that had been the better part of what he loved for his first six years. He thought the day was bound to come when he'd miss her bitterly. Not yet tonight. This hunt he was on, through what still seemed his father's house, was all his mind could manage now. By now, he stood at his parents' door. Never before had he seen it closed. His father's only dread was of traps. But the stream of light was coming from there, around the edges of the door and beneath it. The boy bent slowly and laid his ear on the wood to listen. At first he thought he could hear a whole crowd of friendly voices, but he couldn't hear words. He waited till his ears adjusted. It was just two voices, a man and a woman, more likely a girl, that young and bright. He'd only begun to lean toward girls. Soon he knew the man was his father, but younger too. The girl stayed strange. The boy never understood a word, though he knew from their tone and slowness they were peaceful. A thing he'd always respected was privacy, even more now as his own body grew its secrets. But here... This late, on this big day, his heart had got so huge in his chest that he knew he had no other hope than to turn this knob and take what came at his eyes or mind. After maybe two minutes, his pupils narrowed enough to see, in the core of the glare, his father seated at the foot of his bed. His father wore his regular pajamas, cool sky blue and neatly pressed that much was normal he sat like that each night of his life for five or ten minutes with both eyes shut saying his prayers in a deep silence his painful kneecaps kept him from kneeling 
now though his head was tilted up and his eyes were halfway open in the blaze. His lips were moving as if he went on saying whatever he'd said while Crawford listened outside at the door, but if words came, they were swept away. Crawford thought his own body might also drown or burn past hope, but in his new bravery, he knew not to leave. In another minute, the boy's reward began to rush him. Either she somehow came from above or had been there right along, too bright to see. Whatever, suddenly a girl stood clear and tall by his father, the single sight both boy and man could watch from then on. It took Crawford another slow wait to see her face and know it was some way kin to the face that hung in a frame by his father's bed. Crawford's mother, before her wedding, lovely and strong, as he still could see her in occasional dreams from his cradle days. The picture showed no more than her head, a graceful neck, and the top of a yellow dress. But the girl here, now, wore the same dress which seemed to fall right down to the floor, though it drowned in light, and her dark eyes were surely the same. The boy thought he was brave enough to say her name. At least he felt the powerful need. Let her hear his voice and then just laugh and call him Dub or Strata last time. But before he stoked his courage for that, her face turned gradually in his direction and all but smiled before she faced his father again, closed his eyes with two long hands, and like the mother she once had been, she helped him lie in place on the pillow before she was somehow gone again, and his father was covered with the old dark quilt, plainly asleep and harmless as any new pine in the woods. The light continued long enough to see Crawford back to his own bed, then faded quickly. He sat at the foot and knew his father had surely prayed her back to life to tame him down and save her son. Then the boy slowly asked himself if he wanted to beg for a similar visit. Now he knew it was the only chance. But didn't that girl's face belong to his father? The girl he picked when he was not much older than Crawford tonight? The boy's oldest memories rose, himself in his mother's arms in a chair by the sunny window, consulting each other's eyes for secrets, then laughing together at what they found. It was still the face the boy loved most. It would be that all his life on earth. And though it was gone from his daily world, it was maybe changeless and better in dreams. Next he thought he could steal downstairs, find the quartz knife and bury it deep in a moonless corner. That would keep it safe, and him and his father 
and leave it ready as food again for the hungry gods if they were there still watching man. But no, he was tired and knew he was rescued. He gave one thought to how his mother had looked this morning, cheerful and firm, but calling him back from the edge of the yard, giving him one last kiss on the brow, thumping his skull with a healthy finger and saying, Strut, fly or you'll be late, when she was the one who'd flown in time. So the tired boy stood, shucked his clothes, the room was still warm, and then for the first time entered his sheets as naked as he left her lovely body long ago in pain and blood. As his head lay back, he felt, again and for the last time, the hardness of that long black first trip to reach daylight. But the pain subsided, and through the rest of that short night, he slept like some boy thoroughly safe, whose days hereafter will each be brave, whose nights will bring him whenever he calls, the face and voice he understands are utterly gone. His only mother, lost forever, young and free for good and all. That was James Salter reading Reynolds Price's story, His Final Mother, which is in his collected stories, published by Scribner. The New Yorker Festival is back, and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin, too, and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com festival. Again, that's newyorker.com slash festival. See you there. So, Jim, in some ways, this feels like a classic horror story, you know, with this boy going in a dark house and expecting to be seized by a man with a butcher knife. In other ways, it's sort of a classic psychological portrait of, you know, a young man facing the loss of his mother, the loss of his faith, and this this new form of maturity or knowledge. Do you think that Price was playing with those conventions of storytelling here? What, what do you think he was trying to write? You mean consciously yeah. saying, I'm going to write a, uh, a gothic story and mm-hmm. a coming-of-age story and so forth? All at once. Well, it's very hard to know what he intended. Yeah. Uh, all we know is what came out. Mm-hmm. And it, it's all those things that you mentioned. You know, he wrote some other stories about his mother's death, mm-hmm. uh, two or three of them. Her death and the death of his father were naturally important things in his life. His mother had a double aneurysm. So he wrote this story after all that. Right. He's not describing it, certainly. Yeah, yeah. But I think that informs the whole story. There's something for me, or I think for everyone, very strange about the portrait of the father in this story. You know, he starts off in this kind of weirdly emasculated form. He's off taking a puppy somewhere while the son is home dealing with the death of the mother and he's 
Crawford talks about him as a, you know, a boy who's shakier than me and someone that he tries to protect. Then things shift. What do you think is behind this very unstable portrait of this man? Well, I think these, uh, these mixed feelings toward a father. Mm-hmm. After all, you fear your father normally when you're a kid. You may love him deeply at the same time. And also, uh, of course, this happens to be a time he states at the very beginning he's leaving boyhood and coming into young manhood. So here's an especially uneasy time vis-a-vis a father. And, of course, he's also stating his father's grief, who says to him, uh, I ought to drown myself now, this somewhat atypical behavior after the sudden death of his wife. That part seems to me to be especially... uh, you respond to immediately, you mm-hmm. recognize that. Mm-hmm. It's the other things mixed in with it that make the story curious. Yeah, yeah, there's so much mixed in. I mean, what I find curious is this sense that Crawford, prior to this moment, hasn't feared his father. You know, there's a line saying he'd, he'd humored him. Yes. He'd allowed him to, to go and call him for it. He'd humored him, and he'd sort of, he'd loved him and trusted him enough, but it, there seems to be no fear until this moment after the death when suddenly he's terrified of his father or thinks he's going to kill him. Yes, but he loves his father, even through all the horror part, the man with the knife. But after all that passes, his father is treated very gently again. He has an image of his mother when she was young, now returned as a vision, and closing his father's eyes to leave him in some peace, apparently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's all mixed in there. But, I mean, I find that, I suppose you could write this story straightforwardly. If Philip Roth wrote this story, it would be quite a different story. (laughs) Uh, But this is not Philip Roth. There's not this uh, burning hatred. There's these mixed feelings of adolescence, of uh, feeling helpless, of feeling responsible, of loving and fearing, all that. And, of course, there's even his birth in it at the very end, Mm -hmm. where he says, for one last time, he imagines being born. Yeah. It takes some liberties, takes some poetic liberties. There's also the notion of faith and religion very much throughout the story, I think. And and I also find that perplexing, the the way that it's done, because there's, there's the moment out by the river where the son tries to console the father by saying, well, she's in heaven, and, and the father says, oh, I've lied to you. And, and you don't really believe that. So you have the sense of a sort of dismissal of, of the easy consolation of religion. Then later there's the moment of the father praying when Crawford can't, yes. and, and of it being perhaps his reward for his faith that his wife comes back to, to see him one more time. But his wife doesn't come back, does she? Doesn't, isn't this what Crawford thinks? I mean, I don't know if his father saw any of this. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling Crawford, the young boy, is lying in bed in his room, finally. Mm-hmm. And he wakes, he comes to his father's room. There's an unearthly light coming from it, a door that's never closed. And he listens at this door, and he hears voices. Then he opens the door, and there's his father in his blue pajamas talking to a vision, a young woman vision that he recognizes, that Crawford 
recognizes. I don't think his father saw this. You don't? Hmm. No, I don't think his father was sitting there. I think this is all Crawford's imagining. What do you think we're supposed to feel about Crawford? You know, who takes himself very seriously, even before his mother dies. He wants to be a man, he, yeah. and he feels in the moment of this death that he at 12 has become a man yeah. in some new way. Do you think he's he's a sympathetic character? Do you think we're we're meant to feel for him in this sort of well, I long, think, dark night of the soul, you know? I think Ronald's surprised to be very disappointed if we didn't find him such. Mm-hmm. I think he wrote him to be that way. Yeah. Yes, I sympathize with him. I mean, what else can you do? I like him. I I don't really like anybody named Strut or Dub, <laughs> but let's overlook that. So do you feel at the end of the story that the father and son are both at peace? Well, Crawford seems to be. Mm-hmm. He says his mother will always, he can always summon her. He loves her deeply. The father is not really involved here. He's necessary. He's the other figure, but it's really Crawford that we're listening to. So, you know, if I had to teach this story in class, I'd hate to make up the questionnaire at the end of it <laughs> and ha- expect certain right. answers yeah. because I think it it's plain spoken enough, but it's washing around a little in a way that permits everything you've said mm-hmm. about what does this mean or did he... We didn't agree, I gather on whether the father actually saw this vision mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. So that's a, quite an important point here. Did this happen? In short, the only thing we know that happened is the mother's death. Beyond that, it becomes kind of a ghost story. Yeah. He knew somehow. He felt. He didn't know how it happened in his mind. These phrases are through it continually. So what do you really think about it? Oh, I, I I felt that the father saw her. I did feel as though there was something going on with the fact that she came back as the girl the father knew and not as the mother Crawford knew, that there was a sense of possession or of claiming well, very from romantic. the father's side. Yeah. She's in the yellow gown and yeah. uh, so forth. Well, I don't, believe he, I don't believe the father saw her. I think the father was asleep or out in the woods, perhaps. I don't know. So then Crawford seeing her has... has dreamed up or, or hallucinated the mother that he didn't know? Well, uh, of course, he, he didn't know her personally because he had not yet reached the final paragraph when he <laughs> was born. Yeah. But uh, he he knew her from that photograph. That is to say, he knew her when she was young through photographs and his father and so forth. Well, you know... Crawford comes back to the house. The father we have left in the woods, he got away from the father, so to speak. He sees a man with a butcher knife. We know that he doesn't see that, surely. We know the father is not waiting for him. We know he doesn't have the quartz knife in his hand, none of that. So I think that's entirely Crawford from then on. Mm -hmm. That's why I say Mm -hmm. I don't think... uh, he actually went to his father's room and saw that. I suppose there are just so many undercurrents of malevolence in the story, and you feel they have to come from somewhere, or else why did this supposedly charming, cheerful 
12-year-old who perhaps took himself a little too seriously, but everybody loved. Why does he suddenly dream all of this? I mean, this is only the way I mm-hmm. uh, read the story. Then no version is really right. Right, so. yeah, yeah, there's no way to know. And even if he told you what he meant, it doesn't help. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter a bit what he meant. Well, thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. James Salter's story, Last Night, appeared in The New Yorker in 2002 and was read on The New Yorker Fiction Podcast in 2009 by Thomas McQuaine. You can find that and more than 60 other episodes in the iTunes Store, where you can subscribe to this podcast as well as to The New Yorker Out Loud and The Political Scene. All New Yorker podcasts are free. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com or join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thank you for listening.